Welcome. Welcome to our summer series here at Every Day. We've just had a wonderful time walking through the book of Exodus together. And in the autumn, we're going to be spending some time focusing on corporate worship and the gift of the Holy Spirit. But now we're going to pause for a few weeks and we're going to spend time in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Four chapters that deserve far more than five sermons, but four chapters that can do us good. I'd encourage each one of us to read these chapters over and over again over this summer season. It is so rich. We're going to draw five themes from the book. Today we're going to look at an introduction and the centrality of Christ in Paul's thinking. Then we're going to look at servant leadership. We're going to look at overcoming the flesh. We're going to look at how we live out our faith in everyday life and everyday relationships. And then we'll finish by looking at the importance of prayer. So we're going to start at the beginning. Let me read to you just the first two verses of Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. When I come to Scripture, one of the ways that I unpack it for myself is to ask questions. I want to read the Word of God, and I want to let the Word of God read me. And asking questions of a passage helps me. It helps me because we know that the Bible is not a book, it's a library of books. And just as when you walk into a physical library, there are different sections, history over there, non-fiction over there, geography over there, sport over there, where I often gravitate to. So the Bible is a library with different sections. Colossians is a letter. And when we're coming to a letter, in order to understand it, we ask some basic questions. Who wrote it? Who was it written to? Why was it written? Where was it written? Now, fortunately, when it comes to Colossians, you don't have to be a Greek scholar, you don't have to have a theology degree to answer some of these basic questions because it tells us. It starts, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Paul is the writer of this letter. Paul, who used to be Saul. Paul, who had been the chief persecutor of the church through the first eight chapters of Acts. And then in chapter 9, Paul, who is knocked off his horse by an encounter with Christ. This man who was steeped in rabbinic tradition, who knew the law better than anyone else, encountered the fulfillment of the law in the risen Christ. A man by his own confession who was full of pride was humbled by the risen Saviour. Paul says, and our brother Timothy. This letter is from Paul, probably written by Timothy for him. And it's from Timothy. We're reminded right at the start of the letter that Paul does not work alone. 
Next time, we'll look at biblical leadership as modelled by Paul, and we'll see that biblical leadership is always team leadership. Paul always works alongside others. So this letter is written by Paul and his team, and it's written to God's holy people in Colossae. In some translations, that would have read to the saints in Colossae. You may remember back in January and February of this year, we looked at our vision and our values. And we, might, we reminded ourselves that in Scripture, the believers were never called sinners. They're called saints. That as believers, we're not these awful people trying to do good. No, we've been declared holy because God is holy. We've been declared as saints. And what we're seeking to do is grow into who we already Ah, so with these brothers and sisters at Colossae, they are the holy people. They are the saints. And they live in this small city called Colossae. It was part of what is now modern-day Turkey, about 120 miles from Ephesus. Interestingly, this church was not planted by Paul. Paul did, with his team, plant numerous churches, and he wrote letters to them. But Colossae was actually planted by someone called Epaphras, almost certainly a convert to Christianity through Paul's ministry in Ephesus. It says in Acts 19, while Apollos was at Corinth, another a worker, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Then verse 8 of chapter 19 of Acts says this, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Colossae was in the province of Asia. Epaphras, we think, was there at the hall of Tyrannus. We don't know whether he went once or multiple times over those two years, but he responded to the gospel and he took the gospel back to his city to Colossae, preached the gospel, saw people saved, and established a church. Isn't that amazing? And so Paul writes to them because he's heard of their faith. This is what it says in verse 4. It says, Because we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. Paul hoped to visit this church. It says in Philemon, verse 22, one more thing, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Well, how does that tell us that he hoped to visit Colossae? Well, because Philemon was in the church in Colossae. Okay? And Philemon's servant, Onesimus, is in prison with Paul. And so Paul's sending a message. Paul hopes to visit Paul is writing this letter from prison. So Paul has preached the gospel in Ephesus 
Epaphras has taken the gospel to Colossae. Paul has continued in ministry. And now, in around about AD 62, Paul is in prison in Rome, but is writing to churches that he's planted and churches that he has heard about, almost certainly hearing about these churches by other Christians who are visiting him in Rome or in prison with him in Rome. He was under house arrest. So he was limited in his freedom. So what does Paul do? Paul does what he can do. Paul cannot, in this season of his life, visit churches, so he writes to churches. Alongside witnessing to those around him in prison, the prison guards he was witnessing to, he also writes to churches to encourage believers. He was doing what he felt called to do in the moment. We are reading these words 2,000 years later. This is a wonderful example of how God uses obedience in the moment to build his kingdom. Maybe right now you're thinking, I'm not achieving anything. I'm in, I'm in this job I don't really like. I, I'm not that keen on where I live. I'm struggling. I'm just trying to be faithful. What am I doing for God? You're doing loads for God. It is amazing how faithful service in the moment is used by God to build his kingdom. Never underestimate the potential impact of faithful service to God in what might seem very limiting situations. Paul's situation was limited, but the impact of this letter is huge. So Paul and Timothy are writing from prison to this church in Colossae. Why is he writing it? Although Paul is writing because his wider ministry is limited by his imprisonment, he's not writing aimlessly. He writes with purpose. He has heard really good reports about the Colossi church, about the Colossians in, in the church. He, he is broadly encouraged, but he's obviously concerned. He's obviously a little bit worried that the people in Colossae are being bashed around a bit by others. So what does Paul do? Well, he speaks first to theology, belief, what we believe about God, and then he speaks to practice. That's quite common in Paul's letters. He lays a theological foundation, but then he applies those truths to real-life situations. Paul has a level of concern. It doesn't seem to be as deep as his concern in certain other situations. So to the, to the Galatian church, he wrote this, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Are you so foolish? Or to the church in Corinth, he says this, In the following directives, I have no praise for you. Your meetings do more harm than good. I mean, they are strong words. We don't get those in Colossians. But Paul is clearly unsettled. He is glimpsing from what he's hearing the first signs of heresy or drift. And that's a great biblical word, the word drift. It's used throughout the letter to the Hebrews, where the writer to the Hebrews just says, don't drift. Don't allow the currents of the prevailing culture to drift you away from truth. How do I know Paul is unsettled? Well, you read it in verse 23 of chapter 1. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, 
and do not move from the help held out in the gospel. Why do you say, do hold on? Why do you say, hold on tight? Well, because you're worried someone's going to not hold on tight. Why does a parent say, hold tight to my hand? Because you know a small child is, is often going to run off. She so say, hold tight. In chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says this, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Or verse 8 of chapter 2, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Paul is aware that the believers in Colossae are surrounded by many voices and influences. The first century was awash with philosophy and spiritual teaching. We know from Paul's other letters that it was not unusual for Jewish teachers to connect with young churches and try and draw them into Judaism. To try and say, oh, to be a real Christian, you have to obey all of these laws from the Old Testament. Equally, we know there were other spiritual teachers who were keen to advocate further revelation. Keen to go, oh, well done. You started well in Jesus. Oh, but now if you just add this extra bit of knowledge, this little bit of super spirituality, sometimes it involved denying the body and being ascetic. For others, it was an, what's called an over-realized eschatology. Oh, the body doesn't matter. There were those who wanted to syncretize the Christian faith, take the best bits and mix it with how they wanted to live their lives anyway or add Jesus to the other gods in that area. Sound familiar? It should. 21st century London, 21st century world is like this. So what is Paul's solution? Paul, writing to this church, of which he's heard many good things, he's become aware there's this potential drift. They are being maybe pulled this way and that. We know there's some persecution happening. That's why Paul is in prison. And under persecution, it's, it's, it's easy to kind of look for another way, another belief. What is Paul's solution? Well, unsurprisingly, it is to draw their gaze to Jesus. As you read through these verses, it's all about Jesus. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Verse 2, to the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 3, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. Why? Because Christ has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son who he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then you get this incredible hymn of praise from chapter 1 verse 15 onwards the son is the image of the invisible god the firstborn over all creation for in him all things were created things in heaven and on earth visible and invisible thrones or powers rulers or authorities all things have been created in him and through him and for him he is before all things and in him all things hold together and he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, 
and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Verse 27, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He, Christ, is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I mean, wow. Wow. What is Paul's answer to those who say, oh no, you need to keep these additional laws? What is Paul's answer to, oh, the body doesn't really matter so you can treat it how you like? What is Paul's answer to, oh, you need some further revelation? Well, one answer, Jesus. Jesus. Jesus who was the fulfillment of the law. That's why you don't need to keep those sacrificial laws anymore. Jesus, who was incarnate, he became flesh. He was physically crucified. He physically rose. He physically ascended. He will physically return. So guess what? The physical matters. The body matters. Christ God anoints the body through the incarnation. Jesus will return. You don't need anything more on top of Jesus. Why? Because everything is held together in Christ. Christ reconciles some things. No, all things are reconciled in Christ. You can't step outside of Christ because everything is in Christ. Christ is the only one we need to proclaim. The gospel is unique and complete because Christ is unique and complete. Jesus is the perfect representation of God. Need more knowledge? Look at Jesus again. It's all there. The fullness of restoration and reconciliation are in Christ. The cross, the historical event that was not hidden and is not secret. It was very public, in view for everyone to see. You don't need special eyes to see the cross. It was there, displayed publicly, and the cross has done it all. The gospel is enough because Jesus is enough. Paul gives the believers the perfect litmus test for any truth or thing that's proposing to be truth, and the lip to anything they hear, and it's this, how does it relate to Jesus? If it adds to Jesus, it's heresy. If it seeks to replace the work of Jesus with personal works, it's heresy. If it seeks to replace the work of Christ with a work that's dependent on someone else, it's heresy. If it denies the flesh, it's heresy. If it denies the resurrection, it's heresy. If it denies the return of Christ, it's heresy. It's not true. 
Your touchstone is Jesus. This is Paul's answer. Keep coming back to Christ. As he says in his letter to the Romans, fix your eyes. Fix your eyes. Be transformed by fixing your eyes on Jesus. So how do we do that? It's all well and good to say fix your eyes on Jesus, but how do we do that? Well, there are numbers of ways. We'll, we'll look at prayer in a few weeks' time. We'll talk about community over these next few weeks. But I just want to give you one. Worship. Worship. Now, as we will discover, all of our life is worship. We work at all things as if working for Christ, to quote Colossians 3. But there's something about focused, corporate, and individual sung worship. Over the years, scholars have surmised that these glorious verses that I read from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through to 21 and 22, were possibly an early Christian hymn, a, a worship song. The, the structure of them in the, in the Greek points to kind of Hebrew poetry structure. There's a, a rhythm and a beat. Even in the English translation, you kind of get in the rhythm of it. And maybe it was a song. And maybe what Paul is doing is saying, hey, remember this song you sing when you gather? When you hear these other views, when you're tempted to move this way, and that, just sing it to yourself. It's all about Jesus. I don't know about you, but sometimes songs get in my brain. I discovered recently that I'm, I'm a hummer. I'm, I, I didn't know I was doing it until other people started sharing their offers with me. And then they go, Simon, you do hum. And yeah, I realize I do. And it's usually kind of one line of a worship song that goes around in my head time and time again. Worship songs get in us. That's why it matters what we sing. That's why the words of our worship songs matter as much as the interest there might be in the tune or the melody. Worship keeps us focused on Jesus. How through these summer weeks might we stay focused on Jesus well, invest in worship. Commit to gathered worship, even when the sun is shining. Commit to personal worship. Sing songs of truth over yourself. Allow others to sing songs of truth over you. Worship matters. We are created for worship. We're hardwired for worship. There are many activities that we know we won't take into eternity with us. But worship, we will. The glimpses that we're given of eternity and heaven in Scripture make this very clear. There'll be a lot of worship. Holy, 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 we will sing. So let's hear the words of Paul. Let's remind ourselves we don't need anything outside of Jesus. No podcast, no special revelation, no special activity or action or sacrifice. It's all there for us in Christ. 
Let's fix our attention on him. Let's spend these summer weeks worshipping. Why? Because the sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for Jesus. We're so grateful for the clarity that he brings to our lives. We're so grateful for the simplicity and yet the magnitude of his life, his death, his resurrection and his return. Help us to worship him in this season. Amen.